You see that I have to write your life to you, and you have to realise it. We have known each other now for more than four years. Half of the time we have been together. The other half I have had to spend in prison, as the result of our friendship. Where you will receive this letter, if indeed it ever reaches you, I don't know. Rome, Naples, Paris, Venice, some beautiful city on sea or river, I have no doubt, holds you. You are surrounded, if not with all the useless luxury you had with me, at any rate with everything that is pleasurable to eye, ear and taste. Life is quite lovely to you. And yet, if you are wise and wish to find life much lovelier still, and in a different manner, you will let the reading of this terrible letter, for such I know it is, prove to you as important a crisis and turning point of your life as the writing of it is to me. Your pale face used to flush easily with wine or pleasure. If, as you read what is here written, it from time to time becomes scorched, as though by a furnace blast with shame, it will be all the better for you. The supreme vice is shallowness. Whatever is realised is right. I have now got as far as the house of detention, have I not? After a night passed in the police cells, I am sent there in the van. You were most attentive and kind. Almost every afternoon, if not actually every afternoon, till you go abroad, you took the trouble to drive up to Holloway to see me. You also wrote very sweet and nice letters. But that it was not your father, but you, who had put me into prison, that from beginning to end you were the responsible person, that it was through you, for you, and by you that I was there, never for one instant dawned upon you. Even the spectacle of me behind the bars of a wooden cage could not quicken that dead, unimaginative nature. You had the sympathy and the sentimentality of a spectator at a rather pathetic play. That you were the true author of the hideous tragedy did not occur to you. I saw that you realised nothing of what you had done. I did not desire to be the one to tell you what your own heart should have told you. What it indeed would have told you, if you would not let hate harden it and make it insensate. Everything must come to one out of one's own nature. There is no use telling a person that he does not feel and can't understand. If I write to you now as I do, it is because your own silence and conduct during my long imprisonment have made it necessary. Besides, as things had turned out, the blow had fallen upon me alone. That was a source of pleasure. To me, I was content for many reasons to suffer, though there was always to my eyes as I watched you something not a little contemptible in your complete and willful blindness. I remember you producing with absolute pride a letter you had published in one of the halfpenny newspapers about me. It was a very prudent, temperate, indeed commonplace production. You appealed to the English sense of fair play, or something very dreary of that kind, on behalf of a man who was down. It was the sort of letter you might have written had a painful charge been brought against some respectable person with whom personally you had been quite unacquainted. But you thought it a wonderful letter. You looked on it as a proof of almost quixotic chivalry. I am aware that you wrote other letters to other newspapers that they did not publish. But then they were simply to say that you hated your father. Nobody cared if you did or not. Hate, you had yet to learn, is intellectually considered the eternal negation. Considered from the point of view of the emotions, it is a form of atrophy and kills everything but itself. 
To write to the papers to say that one hates someone is as if one were to write to the papers to say that one had some secret and shameful malady. The fact that the man you hated was your own father, and that the feeling was thoroughly reciprocated, did not make your hate noble or fine in any way. If it showed anything, it was simply that it was an hereditary disease. I remember again when an execution was put into my house, and my books and furniture were seized and advertised to be sold, and bankruptcy was impending, I naturally wrote to tell you about it. I did not mention that it was to pay for some gifts of mine to you that the bailiffs had entered the house where you had so often dined. I thought, rightly or wrongly, that such news might pain you a little. I merely told you the bare facts. I thought it proper that you should know them. You wrote back from Boulogne in a strain of almost lyrical exultation. You said that you knew your father was hard up for money and had been obliged to raise £1,500 for the expenses of the trial and that my going bankrupt was really a splendid score of him as he would not then be able to get any of his costs out of me. Do you realise now what hate blinding a person is? Do you recognise now that when I described it as an atrophy, destructive of everything but itself, I was scientifically describing a real psychological fact? That all my charming things were to be sold, my Burne jones drawings, my Whistler drawings, my Monticelli, my Simeon Solomons, my China, my library with its collection of presentation volumes from almost every poet of my time, from Hugo to Whitman, from Swinburne to Mallarmé, from Morris to Verlaine, with its beautifully bound editions of my father's and mother's works, its wonderful array of college and school prizes, its editions de luxe and the like, was absolutely nothing to you. You said it was a great bore, that was all. What you really saw in it was the possibility that your father might ultimately lose a few hundred pounds, and that paltry consideration filled you with ecstatic joy. As for the costs of the trial, you may be interested to know that your father openly said in the Orléans Club that if it had cost him £20,000, he would have considered the money thoroughly well spent. He had extracted such enjoyment and delight and triumph out of it all. The fact that he was able not merely to put me into prison for two years, but to take me out for an afternoon and make me a public bankrupt was an extra refinement of pleasure that he had not expected. It was the crowning point of my humiliation and of his complete and perfect victory. Had your father had no claim for his costs on me, you, I know perfectly well, would, as far as words go at any rate, have been most sympathetic about the entire loss of my library a loss irreparable to a man of letters, the one of all my material losses the most distressing to me. You might even, remembering the sums of money I had lavishly spent on you and how you had lived on me for years, have taken the trouble to buy in some of my books for me. The best all went for less than a hundred and fifty pounds, about as much as I would spend on you in an ordinary week but the mean, small pleasure of thinking that your father was going to be a few pence out of pocket made you forget all about trying to make me a little return, so slight, so easy, so inexpensive, so obvious and so enormously welcome to me had you brought it about. Am I right in saying that hate blinds people? Do you see it now? If you don't, try to see it. How clearly I saw it then, as now, I need not tell you. But I said to myself, at all costs I must keep love 
in my heart. If I go into prison without love, what will become of my soul? The letters I wrote to you at that time from Holloway were my effort to keep love as the dominant note of my own nature. I could, if I had chosen, have torn you to pieces with bitter reproaches. I could have rent you with maledictions. I could have held up a mirror to you and shown you such an image of yourself that you would not have recognised it as your own till you found it mimicking back your gestures of horror. And then you would have known whose shape it was and hated it and yourself for ever. More than that, indeed, the sins of another were being placed to my account. Had I so chosen, I could on either trial have saved myself, at his expense, not from shame, indeed, but from imprisonment. Had I cared to show that the Crown Witnesses, the three most important, had been carefully coached by your father and his solicitors, not in reticences merely, but in assertions, in the absolute transference deliberate, plotted and rehearsed, of the actions and doings of someone else onto me, I could have had each one of them dismissed from the box by the judge more summarily than even wretched perjured Atkins was. I could have walked out of court with my tongue in my cheek and my hands in my pockets a free man. The strongest pressure was put upon me to do so. I was earnestly advised, begged, entreated to do so by people whose sole interest was my welfare and the welfare of my house. But I refused. I did not choose to do so. I have never regretted my decision for a single moment, even in the most bitter periods of my imprisonment. Such a course of action would have been beneath me. Sins of the flesh are nothing. They are maladies for physicians to cure, if they should be cured. Sins of the soul alone are shameful. To have secured my acquittal by such means would have been a lifelong torture to me. But do you really think that you were worthy of the love I was showing you then, or that for a single moment I thought you were? Do you really think that at any period in our friendship you were worthy of the love I showed you, or that for a single moment I thought you were? I knew you were not. But love does not traffic in a marketplace, nor use a huckster's scales. Its joy, like the joy of the intellect, is to feel itself alive. The aim of love is to love, no more and no less. You were my enemy, such an enemy as no man ever had. I had given you my life. And to gratify the lowest and most contemptible of all human passions, hatred and vanity and greed, you had thrown it away. In less than three years you had entirely ruined me from every point of view. For my own sake there was nothing for me to do but to love you. I knew that if I allowed myself to hate you, that in the dry desert of existence over which I had to travel, and am travelling still, every rock would lose its shadow, every palm tree be withered, every well of water prove poisoned at its source. Are you beginning now to understand a little? Is your imagination awakening from the long lethargy in which it has lain? You know already what hate is. Is it beginning to dawn on you what love is? And what is the nature of love? It is not too late for you to learn. Though to teach it to you, I may have had to go to a convict cell. After my terrible sentence, when the prison dress was on me and the prison house closed, I sat amidst the ruins of my wonderful life, crushed by anguish, bewildered with terror, dazed through pain. 
but I would not hate you. Every day I said to myself, I must keep love in my heart today, else how shall I live through the day? I reminded myself that you meant no evil to me at any rate. I set myself to think that you had but drawn a bow at a venture, and that the arrow had pierced a king between the joints of his harness. To have weighed you against the smallest of my sorrows, the meanest of my losses, would have been, I felt, unfair. I determined I would regard you as one suffering too. I forced myself to believe that at last the scales had fallen from your long-blinded eyes. I used to fancy, and with pain, what your horror must have been when you contemplated your terrible handiwork. There were times, even in those dark days, the darkest of all my life, when I actually longed to console you. So sure was I that at last you had realised what you had done. It did not occur to me then that you could have the supreme vice, shallowness. Indeed, it was a real grief to me when I had to let you know that. I was obliged to reserve for my family business my first opportunity of receiving a letter. But my brother-in-law had written to me to say that if I would only write once to my wife, she would, for my sake and for our children's sake, take no action for divorce. I felt my duty was to do so. Setting aside other reasons, I could not bear the idea of being separated from Cyril, that beautiful, loving, lovable child of mine, my friend of all friends, my companion beyond all companions, one single hair of whose little golden head should have been dearer and more valuable to me than, I will not say you from top to toe, but the entire chrysolite of the whole world, was so indeed to me always, though I failed to understand it till too late. Two weeks after your application I get news of you. Robert Sherard, that bravest and most chivalrous of all brilliant beings, comes to see me, and among other things tells me that in that ridiculous Mercure de France, with its absurd affectation of being the true centre of literary corruption, you are about to publish an article on me with specimens of my letters. He asks me if it really was by my wish— I was greatly taken aback and much annoyed, and gave orders that the thing was to be stopped at once. You had left my letters lying about for blackmailing companions to steal, for hotel servants to pilfer, for housemaids to sell. That was simply your careless want of appreciation of what I had written to you. But that you should seriously propose to publish selections from the balance was almost incredible to me. And which of my letters were they? I could get no information. That was my first news of you. It displeased me. The second piece of news followed shortly afterwards. Your father's solicitors had appeared in prison and served me with a bankruptcy notice for a paltry £700, the amount of their taxed costs. I was adjudged a public insolvent and ordered to be produced in court. I felt most strongly and feel still, and will revert to the subject again, that these costs should have been paid by your family. You had taken personally on yourself the responsibility of stating that your family would do so. It was that which had made the solicitor take up the case in the way he did. You were absolutely responsible. Even irrespective of your engagement on your family's behalf, you should have felt that as you had brought the whole ruin on me, the least that could have been done was to spare me the additional ignominy of bankruptcy for an absolutely contemptible sum of money, less than half of what I spent on you in three brief summer months at Goring. Of that, however, no more here. I did, 
through the solicitor's clerk, I fully admit, receive a message from you on the subject, or at any rate in connection with the occasion. The day he came to receive my depositions and statements, he leant across the table, the prison warder being present, and, having consulted a piece of paper which he pulled from his pocket, said to me in a low voice, Prince Fleur de Lis wishes to be remembered to you. I stared at him. He repeated the message again. I did not know what he meant. The gentleman is abroad at present, he added mysteriously. It all flashed across me, and I remember that for the first and last time in my entire prison life I laughed. In that laugh was all the scorn of all the world. Prince Fleur de Lis! I saw, and subsequent events showed me that I rightly saw, that nothing that had happened had made you realise a single thing. You were in your own eyes still the graceful prince of a trivial comedy, not the sombre figure of a tragic show. All that had occurred was as but a feather for the cap that gilds a narrow head, a flower to pink the doublet that hides the heart that hate and hate alone can warm, that love and love alone finds cold. Prince Fleur de Lis! You were no doubt quite right to communicate with me under an assumed name. I myself at that time had no name at all. In the great prison where I was then incarcerated, I was merely the figure and letter of a little cell in a long gallery, one of a thousand lifeless numbers, as of a thousand lifeless lives. But surely there were many real names in real history which would have suited you much better and by which I would have had no difficulty at all in recognising you at once. I did not look for you behind the spangles of a tinsel vizard, suitable only for an amusing masquerade. Ah, had your soul been, as for its own perfection, even it should have been, wounded with sorrow, bowed with remorse, and humble with grief, such was not the disguise it would have chosen beneath whose shadow to seek entrance to the house of pain. The great things of life are what they seem to be, and for that reason, strange as it may sound to you, are often difficult to interpret. But the little things of life are symbols. We receive our bitter lessons most easily through them. Your seemingly casual choice of a feigned name was, and will remain, symbolic. It reveals you.